Father, thank you for giving us songs, hymns, all kinds of music, all kinds of art. Thank you for the beautiful world we live in. Reflects your glory, speaks of your creativity, your wisdom and intelligence. Thank you for sending your son into it, even though it had been ruined by sin. Thank you for his death on the cross and his resurrection. Thank you, Jesus, that you share the reward of your suffering with us and you save us, bring us into God's family. We love you. Help us to listen to you. Make this a transformative experience for everyone, beginning with me, in Christ's name, amen. Good morning. King Ahab was a wicked king. But he did want to say one thing, if you're familiar with his story. The wicked king of Israel had been threatened by a pagan king who told him exactly what he was going to do once he defeated him in battle, what was going to happen to Ahab and all the people he governed. And maybe the only wise, true thing Ahab said in his entire life is what he said next. He said, a man who is putting his armor on shouldn't brag like a man who is taking his armor off. You get it? Yeah. It's one thing to bear up and gear up for battle. That is not the time for bragging. The time for bragging and storytelling is when you get safely home and you take the gear off. Only then. Now, what's that have to do with anything? Well, today, again, I'm talking about parenting. And I'm in the middle of the battle of it with you. I have two sons, they're walking with Jesus this morning, they're serving the Lord this morning, but the battle's not over. They're young men, they have a long way to go, as do I. But this is the weekend that so many of our teens and kids go to camp. We loaded a whole bunch of people onto this big, sleek, beautiful bus just about an hour ago, so much nicer than the buses I took to camp. How many of you went to camp on a 1974 bus that only a church was willing to buy? Anybody else, anybody else have that experience? And the bus was entrusted to the only guy in the church willing to drive it filled with teenagers? It's a wonder any of us made it. So this is a strange Sunday. It's one of my least favorite Sundays because so many of the kids are gone. And I kind of mourned about that a little bit. And then I thought, well, what if, since we have a few weeks off before our next series, what if I talk to the parents and the grandparents? What if I talk to those who have children in their lives they love, they're trying to mold to faith? So that's what I'm going to do. You'll need your Bible. You'll need it a great deal, actually. I'm going to read quite a bit of Scripture a lot of it without much explanation, just to show you a journey in the book of Ephesians. Please open your Bibles there. And if you have your bulletin outline, find the outline in your bulletin, rather, there's a few passages we'll be referring to there as well. I'm in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. At the end of this letter that Paul has written to a church he loved, a church who was born through his preaching in a very wicked and pagan place, 
actually a city in modern-day Turkey that in its time was literally world-renowned for its idolatry. Very unlikely, very difficult place for any group of people to believe in Jesus, but they have. And this is a vitally important church. It was started by the preaching of Paul, eventually the Apostle John, apparently it's going to be its pastor. It's a remarkable church that God has birthed there in the ancient, important city of Ephesus. And probably because Paul knew them so well and had spent time with them, he sent them this letter, and it's one of the richest letters in all of the New Testament. Its theme is the supremacy of Jesus. To people who were told to believe in all number of gods and do all kinds of wicked things with their mind and their body to commune with the gods, Paul has a simple message. There's no one like Jesus. He is supreme. He is utterly unique. He has proved it by dying on the cross and rising from the dead just as he promised, and he is your only hope. And it's a beautiful letter. Especially in the language that Paul wrote it, it has these wonderful run-on sentences. It's almost like Paul is too excited to pick his pen up off the parchment. Just one long, wonderful exposition of who Jesus is and the miracle of their own existence. Because Paul is going to talk to them about the church, which means the assembly in the New Testament. An assembly that has been called together. In other words, it's not a random group of people. It's not people who wander into a theater, who just choose to come there. It's a group of people who have been summoned because they share a common belief and a common cause. That's the church. And he's going to tell them and explain to them that they represent a miracle and they represent that something that was in, hidden in God's heart from ages past that much like a parent might at Christmas time pull the, pull the closet door open and bring out all the Christmas gifts on Christmas Day. There are, these are gifts and ideas and a purpose that God had in mind from the very beginning but was impossible for Israel to understand, for Jews like Paul to understand, and it's certainly impossible for the Ephesians to understand that what God has been doing all of this time is sending Jesus not only to die for sin, but to bring everyone who trusts him into the family of God, Jews and Gentiles alike. In other words, Sabbath-keeping, kosher-eating, law of Moses, knowing and loving Israel along with these wretched pagans who in Jesus' day were usually called by observant Jews charming things like dogs. Now, in an outpost in an important city of the empire of Rome, people who have been pagans all of their lives, who used to do things like consider drunkenness and sexual ecstasy a religious experience, now they've been brought into the family of God by what Jesus has done on the cross. And this, Paul's going to explain, and I'm going to show you in a moment, is a mystery. In other words, it's something that was hidden in God's heart and mind that he deployed only at the time when he knew it was best, only when he chose to do so. That's the book of Ephesians. The supremacy of Christ seen especially in his creation of the church, which 
2,000 years later on the other side of the world, depending on the Sunday, but if you look across this congregation, we reflect a great deal of that diversity. A few Sundays ago, I was struck by who happened to be up here leading us in music. I think there were five nationalities and seven languages on the stage at the same time. What do all those people, what do all those cultures have in common, Christ? Cultures who've literally hated each other for millennia now sing to Jesus, love one another, serve one another because of the commonality that he has made in them. That's the assembly, that's the church. And all of that by way of introduction so that Paul can say to parents in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, this simple instruction. Fathers, and that Greek word can be translated parents as well, it might be an inclusive term, and certainly as instruction is. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You want to read that with me? You won't receive a better mandate, mom or dad, single parent or married parent, you won't receive a better, clearer mandate than this. And by the way, don't look anxiously at the screens. There are no slides this morning, okay? For those of you who obsessively take notes, listen a little better, okay? Read Ephesians 6, verse 4, ought not out of your Bible, because that might create several translations at once. Read it off the outline with me so that we can read it all together. The Bible says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been learning to read and study the Bible together. The first step of study is observation. What are you told to do if you're a parent, and this extends, obviously, by principle to grandparents or anyone who cares for a child, who has influence, who has a child looking to him, listening to her about what life is and what life should be. What are you specifically told to do in this passage? There's two commandments, aren't there? What's the first one? Do not provoke your children. Any of you have anger running through your parenting? It's pretty hard to parent without anger, have you noticed? On both sides. The kids are mad, mom's mad, dad's mad, dad's warning the kids because mom is mad, it's his fault, but she's mad and everybody's going <laughs> to find out about it. I've got adult kids now, so I have the privilege of occasionally have one of them standing behind his mother as I am talking to her, trying to help me, going like this. <laughs> I got two good wingmen at home right now. <laughs> I look like third base coaches sometimes trying to steer me on the right path. Get down, get down, get down. Get down. No, 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 stop, stop. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We'll come to that. That's important. That way lies hypocrisy and abuse and all kinds of terrible things done in the name of Jesus. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But, here's what you are to do, 
You are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that single verse, he's talked to the kids in the verses beyond that, but we won't delve into that right now because most of them are at camp. But if you're a kid sitting in this room, your job is to obey your parents in the Lord. And that commandment comes with a promise. But right now, I'm just going to talk to mom and dad and grandpa and those who care about kids. Your specific commission as someone who has been saved by Christ and placed in His church is to bring those kids up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So, I just want to give you three simple things. That's why there's not many slides. Well, there's no slides this morning. Three very simple ideas from the letter of Ephesians themselves. In other words, we'll try to sit with the Ephesians in their church meeting and listen to this letter be read aloud to them. That's what the ancient church would have done. There would have been a great deal of excitement because a letter has come from Paul and not everyone in the congregation in the ancient world likely could read. So they sat together in worship on Sunday as we're doing and someone would read the letter aloud to them. So I want to imitate that a little bit with a little explanation and a little application of what Paul is telling the Ephesians from the letter itself would be helpful for them to teach their children. And I've already covered most of it. Look with me back to the first chapter, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Let's read from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. In other words, the Father chose us in His Son, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. In other words, this is all happening because God wants it to happen. To the praise of His glorious grace. In other words, not so that we would be proud, but rather so we would praise how gracious God has been with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That's Jesus. Here's the heart of the gospel of the good news I'm preaching to you. In Him, in Jesus in other words, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That could be six months' worth of teaching. That's a lot. Did you notice? Those are deep, heavy passages. You would do well to read them over and over again until they really start making sense to you. Here, I think, at the taking into account the letter of Ephesians, which is all the Ephesians are listening to on that Sunday morning, I think the first thing that Paul would tell the Ephesians to teach their children as, according to Ephesians 6, 4, they bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord, would be to teach your kids to love and trust Jesus because there's no one like Him. To love and trust Jesus precisely because of His supremacy. Because Jesus never claimed to be one of many good people who could give you insight about God. 
He claimed to be just the opposite. He claimed to be God himself in the flesh as promised in documents that were written up to a thousand years before his birth, which he opened publicly and explained to people saying, I'm the one, this is it. And if that's true, it literally changes everything. And if it's not true, let's all leave and sell the property. Because this is pointless. That's not my opinion. That's specifically what Paul told another church. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, we're still in our sins, our preaching is false, and he, Gardner paraphrased, we might as well party. That's what it says. Eat, drink, be merry because tomorrow we die. If there's nothing beyond this life, it's silly to spend a moment thinking about anything beyond this life. If this is all there is, if there is no eternity, if there is no life a moment after you're dead, you truly are free as a super-evolved ape to make your life whatever you choose it to be and as long whatever the authorities will allow. And that's where we're headed culturally, where everyone essentially does whatever they think is best and you can see the chaos, not only in our country, but worldwide. The book of Ephesians starts with this long run-on sentence that says, God is to be blessed, God is to be praised, we are to thank God because in Christ He did something spectacular. He is supreme, there's absolutely no one like Him. Look up in verse 15, 115. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, in other words, other Christians, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, here's what he's praying for, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. This is who Jesus is if He really rose from the dead. Verse 21. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Man, that's heavy. You're right. Let me just sum up what Paul just said. I'm praying ever since I heard that you also love Jesus, that you've put your faith in Jesus and you prove it by loving other Christians, I've been praying that God would open the eyes of your heart. That's metaphor, obviously. That's poetry. In other words, I've been praying that God would give you spiritual insight so that you would know all of the great blessings and the great hope He has given you beyond this life. And the proof that He can do it is His resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul is saying what God has done in Christ is so extraordinary, it's so big, it's so life-changing, 
I spend my time praying that you'll be able to understand it. And if you ever do understand it, and if your kids ever do understand it, it'll change their lives forever. Because here's what is happening, generally speaking, in contemporary Christianity. You give a child the basic facts about Jesus, and you say, you believe that? And the kid goes, I guess. You want to pray about it? Okay. And the kid prays about 20 words, and that's it. And then the kid returns to a culture that is just teeming with toxicity and ugliness, who is teaching everyone at this point primarily through the heavy use of instant gratification, social media, to live for this moment right now, to not set their eyes on eternity. And the child, as you're going to see later in Ephesians, is tossed in every single direction. And he never grows to the maturity and the faith that perhaps he never had. So the first thing, if parents are to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, in other words, if you are to teach them guide them, put boundaries around them, encourage them, love them, correct them. That's all training. That's all subsumed under the word discipline. Because discipline isn't a negative word. It's an encompassing word. It means training. And anybody who's ever been trained in anything knows that it, there's two sides to the point of training. There's do's and there's don'ts. And they both matter. The don'ts will keep you safe. The do's will make you effective. And all of this, we're told, is not according to the parent's own understanding or their own dreams for their child. Notice again at the top of your sheet, that's why it's printed in front of you, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of whom? Of the Lord. Not an institutional faith, not at this what we've always done. No, what your child, what my boys need more than anything is a deep and abiding love and trust in Jesus because He really is supreme. If they don't come to know and love Him and His supremacy, it will be very easy for them when life gets difficult, and we'll come to that in a minute, to walk away from Him as someone who didn't keep a promise as a set of values that did not work, as a name that other people mention but then claim to follow and result to be hypocrites. The first thing a child needs, and this is genuine salvation, this is real conversion, is a deep and abiding love and trust in Jesus because of His supremacy which is all that Paul is explaining for the first three chapters in the letter of Ephesians. Clear so far? I know it's a weird Sunday, no slides. Everybody's a little weirded out. Huh? <laughs> the first thing you need to deliver in to your children, and it's not a one-time thing. It's a lifelong thing done through words and deeds where they watch your reactions when life gets difficult for you. They watch you navigate disappointments. They watch you in the church be disappointed and betrayed sometimes by others. I know that's all accounted for because in this same letter of Ephesians, Paul says things like this to Christians. Hey, those of you who used to make your living by stealing, 
stop stealing and get a job so that you have something to share with someone else who has a need. See, once you understand these are personal letters written to churches, it changes everything because it makes the congregation, the assembly, it makes Crosspoint all the more realistic. Because I'll tell you something, the church is filled with hypocrites. Have you noticed? I'm one of them. Depending on the day, one of my abiding nightmares living in this small town is to someday really lose my top and somebody say, aren't you the pastor of the church? I used to be. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not teaching them to trust other Christians and to love other Christians first. You're teaching them to love Jesus because He is supreme, because there's absolutely no one like Him, because He never claimed to be one among many. He said radical things like this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Do you know the rest of this? Save through me, except through me. The way, the truth, the life, that's so narrow, that's so offensive in today's culture. Can I give you a historical perspective? It was really offensive in Paul's culture as well. I don't know if you heard, they started killing people for believing that. All these first Christians had to do when persecution really flamed up is to take a pinch of incense and drop it on an altar dedicated to the emperor. That would have saved their lives because symbolism has always mattered. We're not the first to revere symbols and to say that behavior around symbols is important. Human beings have always understood that. You step on a picture of my mom, we're going to have real problems, even though my mom's not present. Symbols matter. So the Romans made to the ancient Christians this simple offer. Listen, we're not saying don't have your God. We're just saying honor the emperor. He's God on earth too. And the Christians said, can't do it. We have a God and Savior. We'll kill you. You'll have to. And there were these things called the gladiator arenas. And there were lions and all sorts of tortures heaped upon the Christians. Why didn't most of them? Some of them did. Why didn't most of them cave? Because they loved and trusted Jesus and His supremacy. If all your child takes from your parenting and from the ministry of our church, which is a partner with you, and that's all we are, we're not a substitute, we're a lousy replacement. We're a wonderful partner and servant, we're a lousy replacement. But if all they take from your time, the time in your home and the time in the church that we share together is that Jesus is a pretty good guy and a pretty good idea and a pretty decent set of values, especially when compared to others, Adversity, difficulty, stress, pressure will take their faith away because it was never genuine, it was never deep. They never learned to love and to trust Him for His supremacy. Clear so far? Let's keep reading in Ephesians. Here's the second thing. Teach your children also to be committed to the body of Christ, His church. Look in Ephesians 3, verse 7. Paul has been explaining, if you'll glance at chapter 3, verse 3, this mystery that he's been explaining, verse 6, 
This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, what nobody suspected and what nobody could believe is that you Gentiles, you former pagans, share equally in the family of God. That all the blessings of Christ are yours. That was the last song that we were singing. Why we should gain a reward from his suffering, we cannot give an answer. It doesn't make sense that he would suffer like that so that we should be rewarded. That's love, that's grace. Nobody's ever loved you like that before. A few people will mirror that love, reflect that love. Someone may be willing to die for you someday. That's the closest reflection of the love of God, but this is what Jesus has come to do. Verse 7, of this gospel, and that just means good news, of this gospel, of this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. In other words, I'm not taking credit. God gifted me, blessed me, equipped me to tell people about this. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, in other words, the Christians, those set apart by God, that's what saint means, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We're back to His supremacy. Do you see that? In other words, the person, the work, the love of Christ is so deep, it's so rich that it's unsearchable. In other words, you could spend the rest of your life coming to grips with it and never finish because that's what it's like to be in relationship with the perfect person. It just gets better and better. The more you discover about Him, the better He turns out to be. He hasn't changed. You're just getting better acquainted with it. Anybody ever been in a really great marriage? If only for a little while, maybe? When you're truly in love with a person that you are discovering, it's great. It's the richest experience in the world. And they're not perfect. You found that out soon enough, usually on the honeymoon. Right? Jesus is perfect. He's faithful, He's loving, He's merciful, He's gracious, He's everything you ever would hope to be, everything you would want your children to be. That's Paul's point here. His riches are unsearchable. Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. In other words, the God who created everything had something else in mind, something else He was keeping hidden, that He would bring the whole world together to faith in Christ, that cultures that had hated and despised each other would love each other instead. And He did all this, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. We were covering that a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night in our Bible reading class. Let me just tell you in plain language what that means. It means that God displays the local church to angels as proof, as a display of His multifaceted deep wisdom. In other words, our little imperfect, messed up with a pastor like me church 
when we are truly loving Jesus and serving him together, something like I saw on that stage with all of those cultures and all of those languages, it's as if God in heaven said to the angels, see that? I did that. That's how wise, that's how good I am. One of the richest experiences I ever had was in the early years of this church when I had in a small group, quite unintentionally, and they both knew it at the same time because of all their years on the street on different sides of the law. I had a very salty homicide detective and an ex-con in a small group together. I didn't introduce them. I saw them recognize one and the other for what they each had been. And I thought to myself, I wonder how this is going to go. Because the ex-con, he, he knows who he's dealing with somehow. And the detective, he really knows who he's dealing with. And they became great friends. And would lean on a fence in my backyard and talk like brothers. That's one of the sweetest things I've ever seen. Who does that? Jesus does that. And at that moment, it's as if God said to angels, see that? That's why he died. What's the point of all this? What's this have to do with parenting? You have to teach and share this with your children. Because the church is not optional. The church is the family of God with all of his messed up kids. How many of God's kids are messed up? All of us. How many of, our, of his kids that really are in his family have been forgiven and have a bright future? All of us. And when you teach your children first the supremacy of Christ and then that Christ in his supremacy displays his wisdom to the angels through the constitution of the church which cost him his own blood, you've set your kids well on their path to walking with Jesus for life. Because the primary, the central relationship is their relationship with the Lord. But that expression, that relationship is made public and real and practical in the lives of other Christians. Look in chapter 4. It says in verse 11, speaking of the church, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, that's pastors, to equip the saints, in other words, to equip Christians for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, He's talking to the local church. He's talking to their assembly in particular. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, that's the church again, that's cross point, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. Do you notice how often love keeps coming up? Look how practical this is. Turn the page and go to Ephesians 4.25. 
Here's how the Christians are to live in our churches then and now. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, why would they have to be told to stop lying unless they were doing it? Have you ever known anybody to lie in church or about church? Happens all the time. And Paul says, stop it. In other words, this is practical. This is realistic. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What's that tell you? They're going to be mad at each other from time to time. And if you raise your kids to be consumer Christians and to walk away from the church of Jesus the first time a Christian in the church offends them, they'll never grow up. They'll never learn to forgive and reconcile. They'll deny that body their gifts. They'll deprive themselves of the gifts of others. Look how practical this is. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. I wonder if everybody turned and looked at the cat burglar in the Ephesian church when that part of the letter was read way back when. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. How many of you parents or grandparents would like your kids to live that verse? Notice the redemptive, godly purpose of work. It's not for you to pay your bills alone. That's a given. That's a no-duh principle. Of course, you have to support yourself. The Bible says that elsewhere. My mother's favorite verse is elsewhere in the Bible. When I was growing up, she would say, if a man will not work, he should not eat. <laughs> not if he can't, but if he won't. So she had long list of chores and would quote that Bible verse and send me out into the hot Mexican sun to get after it. Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This might be a good thing to teach a child in the heart of the church. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ did what? And it all comes back to the supremacy of Jesus. But the supremacy of Jesus is lived out, expressed, it's walked out day by day, not in you reciting a creed all off by yourself, but by you loving and serving and staying in relationship with people who are mutually committed to Christ and mutually committed to each other. That's the local church. You say, well, man, we're really getting into this. Yes, because it's right here. And the church, for very good reasons, including in some cases rank hypocrisy and occasional awful criminality, has fallen in the estimation of Christians. And we say and do things like, oh, I'll just keep, I'll, I'll keep Jesus. I don't need all these other Christians. Jesus never said anything like that. That was not part of his plan. Actually, his plan was to unite people who had contempt for each other so that they would learn to display to an amazed world what a difference Jesus made in them. 
In the United States, we've perfected through technology and because we have money and resources and options, and you probably drove past 12 churches to get to this one, we've perfected a lone ranger, solo, consumer style of Christianity that says, I'll go with this bunch as long as it serves me, much like you might choose between Target and Walmart. And maybe you don't want to go to Walmart, but their prices are just a little better, and it's worth putting up with some of the things that happen there. And that's a consumer decision. What does that look like in the life of the church? Well, who's preaching this Sunday? When I was a young staff guy. I was walking across the parking lot. Someone noticed the senior pastor's very distinctive car was not in the parking lot, parked where it always was. He pulled up, rolled down the window. Bruce, who's preaching today? I told him. He said, thanks, and drove out. <laughs> I was just glad it wasn't me that particular Sunday. That would have been really, that would have been really hurtful. But you know what that showed me? That someone had not begun to understand the depth of what Paul is saying here, God was doing in Christ in putting people who not only know Jesus, but know and love each other in the local church. You have to teach your children to love and trust Jesus because of His supremacy and to stay committed to the local church wherever their studies, wherever their life takes them, because that is what He is presently doing in the world until He returns. This is what we're doing right now. This is only part of church life. This isn't optional. This isn't a good idea. This is central to the plan of God. And finally, and I have just a few more minutes, and this possibly in this age and for this generation matters most, you have to teach your children to love and trust Jesus because He's supreme. You have to show them from Scripture and from your own commitment how much the church matters so that they will have a family to love and support them and encourage them and a family for them to serve all of their lives with Jesus. And thirdly, and perhaps the biggest missing element, you have to prepare your children for adversity. Two amazing researchers have written an incredible book called The Coddling of the American Mind. I don't believe either one of them are Christians. I believe, in fact, probably both are agnostic or atheist. I don't know for sure, but they are not men of faith as far as I can tell. But they're deeply involved in the life of the university. One of them is a professor. The other is an activist and a defender of free speech on the university campus. And they noticed something I noticed just a few years ago. Young college-age Americans are far more fragile emotionally and mentally than they were even five or ten years ago. They're anxious. I lectured recently at a local, public, uh, local Christian university, and the professor in charge said, don't be surprised if anyone, because of very chatty, happy little talk I was going to give, nothing heavy, so she said, don't be surprised or disappointed if anyone bursts into tears or walks out on you. About a third of them are really feeling anxious. And that, that's just the reality on the campus. These researchers go into the reasons why, and they're compelling. And guess what, parents? A lot of it has to do with the way we've raised them. 
But at the heart of it is this. A generation is growing up behind us that is ill-equipped to deal with how hard, brutal, and disappointing life can be. Have you noticed? This week, and no names because I'm praying for them and I don't want to bring further embarrassment and further controversy. This week, a young pastor who shaped a great deal of youth culture just a few years ago walked away from the faith publicly saying, by any measure I know, I don't consider myself a Christian anymore. He's a very young and influential pastor. I don't know all that's going on, but I know that a lot of it, young and old, but especially young, is. Young Christians are sheltered from adversity. They don't know to expect it. When it comes, they have no idea what to do with it, and it frightens them so badly, they are shipwrecked in their faith. You have to prepare your children for the reality of adversity and let them know that they are going to face it. We're still in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Notice the repetition. Be strong in Jesus and be strong in the strength of His might. That's really repetitive. That's on purpose. Be strong with His strength. Strengthen yourself with His strength because yours won't be sufficient. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You notice this is war talk? Put on the whole armor of God. That is, in the ancient world, that's as much, Paul is conjuring up, I won't read you the whole thing, but Paul is conjuring up the image of the maximum warrior of his time. In our day, this would be plate carriers with ceramic plates. Kevlar helmets, high-speed boots, the biggest gear, the biggest armor, the biggest weapons we can muster because, Paul says, you must be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Don't leave a piece exposed. That's what he means. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to do what? War is coming to your kids and for your kids. Life is going to be hard for them. And you will say to yourself, not if I have anything to do with it, May I humbly suggest as a fellow struggler that that's part of the problem? If you shelter your child from every adversity, every trial known until they are grown, they'll walk out of the beautiful little bubble in your house, discover how the world really is apart from your house, and be knocked flat. Far better to show them your own fears. Far better to show them your own scars, to tell them of your own tears. 
and to show them how you persisted in faith, how you hung on to Jesus, and to tell them to normalize the experience by saying, as I have many times, buddy, everybody goes through this. Mean boss? Oh, man, let me tell you. Unfaithful in relationships? Paid less than you're worth? Backstabbed at work? Hurt by people who love you? Betrayed by people you trusted? Yes, 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 yes. But Jesus is better. And there are at least a few people who really do love you. And I am one of them. And this is part of a spiritual attack. And the attack you're feeling, what matters now is not the reality of the difficulty. That's real. That's happening right now. What matters right now is how you're going to respond in the middle of this trouble because what you need to be found to do when this is all over is having done all to stand firm. In other words, what I'm praying and laboring and counseling and hoping and encouraging and begging God for is that my kids are far better men than I am when, I'm, when they get to my age. There's a real good chance I'll be gone by then. Really good chance. But I want to raise men who love the supremacy of Jesus, who understand His cosmic eternal plan to redeem people and to bring them together, and I want them to be steadfast in the face of adversity and not quit because they were disappointed by people. Oh, they found in their heart disappointment with God. And all of this is to be done, and I'm done, without provoking your children to anger. Did you notice that? What provokes a child to anger? I'm going to take three more minutes hypocrisy, harshness, and unpredictability. If you're a hypocritical Christian and a hypocritical parent, and we all are, at least from time to time, please, parents, go home and apologize to your children. The greatest gift God gave me in my parents is parents who loved Him but were quick to apologize and admit they were wrong when they were. My mom and dad never tried to put a good face on the way they had wronged and failed me. There weren't many times, but there were a few because they're human beings and they get angry too. And when they were hypocritical, when they discovered that they had been harsh or unfair, they were quick to ask my forgiveness and that made all the difference in the world. Does that make sense? You try to put a good face on it and pretend that you were right. Guess what? Kids are little, not dumb. They can tell the difference. Tell them the truth. Tell them that you failed to represent Jesus and the only hope is for Him to forgive you and you're hoping that they will as well. They'll never forget it. I'm here to tell you. I never forgot it. I treasure those memories. And don't be harsh with your children. Colossians, the very next verse on your outline says, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Part of the story of the pastor who this week renounced his faith is he was raised in a very harsh rules-first culture. He apologized for that years ago, and this week he renounced faith in Christ. 
In other words, I think at the center of whatever crisis he's going through, and I've actually prayed for him every day since I heard it, I'm not standing in judgment. I'm wondering what's in my heart or the heart of my sons that may put us in a similar predicament. But a part of the toxicity, I'm sure, is the legalism that majors on appearances and insists that kids act right and look right and ignores their heart. Parents, please, you're parenting, you're praying, you're teaching, not for compliance but for obedience. There's a massive difference between obedience and compliance. The police get compliance. I don't know if you've known that, seen the video, been in that situation. You do enough stupid things, they will keep sending police officers until they secure your compliance. That's not what you want. If it takes that many police officers, all that shows is that you've been rebellious. You've probably a lawbreaker. What you want is obedience from the heart that loves Jesus and out of respect and love, loves and trusts you because they love Him first. And please, and I really am through, don't promise them a formula. See, another part of the crisis for this young pastor is even though he was very far apart from the health and wealth nut jobs that make us all sick on TV, who tour the country in private jets and ask for more and more money to sustain ridiculous lifestyles, you know what I'm talking about? That's called the prosperity teaching. And I'm afraid, based on what I've been thinking about this week, hence the sermon, that a lot of us have formulated our own version of the prosperity gospel where you've made your kids a promise that you, and, that you cannot keep and that Jesus never made them. That if they'll just do a certain number of things, everything will be awesome. It's not true. It's not true. See, this particular pastor, I really don't want to get into details because I don't want to cast aspersions on a guy who's suffering in very publicly. He had a very specific formula of how to make your way through the teenage years. And the deal was, if you have this, you'll have a beautiful wife. You'll have an amazing time everywhere with her, including the bedroom. And life will just be this grand feast. Then I think he walked out into real life and discovered that it's hard. Have you noticed? Let me show you a better way, and I, I'm through. Second Timothy, how many times have I said that? Second Timothy, <laughs> Second Timothy chapter 4. This is Paul's last letter. After this, they killed him. Second Timothy chapter 4. Verse 10. Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. Look, at my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Paul's in prison, and he knows they're going to kill him. He has said as much. Here's how his Christianity ended. 
At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Did you see that? People mistreated Paul, betrayed Paul, abandoned Paul. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me that so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles may hear it. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Remember, they're about to kill him. Listen to his faith. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into where? His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You teach your kids to love Jesus because they'll have an awesome life here. They'll eventually walk away from Him. Because life here can always be awesome. It is often difficult. You've taught them instead to love and trust Jesus because He's supreme, to stay in His family for life because it is His work, and to stand fast in the middle of adversity. Please, please, parents, please, grandparents, teach your children what the Bible actually says about Christ and the faith, and that the promise eventually, in spite of betrayal and suffering and even death, is that you will be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. It's not your best life now, it's your best life then. And your job is to be faithful. There are no formulas. You're not held accountable for outcomes. Kids have a vote too. They'll make their own decisions. Your call is to be faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for your word, thank you for the patience of people as they've listened to me this morning, Lord, in a very different kind of message. Lord, may you do through this reading of your word what is right for every family. Some need to be shocked into a response to begin again. Others need to be encouraged and comforted and to have great hope. Some need to stand fast and to keep doing what they're doing. Others need to make a complete U-turn and start walking faithfully with you again. I pray that you would do for them what only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said, we are your partners. If you have prayer requests, questions, or needs occasioned by this sermon, take the card in your bulletin, fill it out, put it in the box at the exit. God bless you. I love you. Go put your armor on and get after it.